It's good to be with you in here. The heat is back on, praise God, but we're already here. And we can worship God here just as well as we can in the sanctuary. We're going to be wrapping up our series this morning on the book of Jonah. We'll be looking at Jonah 4. I would typically direct you to the Pew Bible, no Pew Bible. We're going to determine who the good Christians are who brought their Bibles today. No, I'm just kidding. But, but if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Jonah 4. I will read it. I will read it again and again. You'll hear it. We will know this word this morning. Um, we're looking at Jonah 4. It is the first week of Lent. Be prepared. Next week, we will start a Lenten sermon series. Uh, Pete and I will on um, approaching God, preparing ourselves for the coming Christ, the coming celebration of Resurrection Sunday in about a month and a half, so be prepared for that. But we still have some work to do in Jonah. Jonah 4. Last week we saw in Jonah 3, we saw the, this miracle of God's grace expressed through the power of his word and his great compassion in the lives of the Ninevites. But unfortunately, we saw that great miracle despite Jonah's half-hearted obedience there, his half-hearted ministry. Nevertheless, the whole city of Nineveh, including the king and all the animals, were told, repent and look to God for mercy, and mercy is what they found. And with that, the book ends, right? Everyone's happy, the Ninevites are saved, Jonah goes home, he's praising God for the Ninevites' salvation, and all is well. No, not exactly. Not exactly. I actually, when, I'm, when I have, throughout my life, I've read the book of Jonah, I've often wondered why Jonah 4 is in here. Because in some ways, it feels to me kind of like leaving on a down note. I've never experienced any book in my whole life, including in Scripture, that ends with a description about how many animals are in a city. It seems like a down note. But we'll see this morning that it's not a down note. Jonah 4 is essential to the book of Jonah as God is not quite done showing Jonah, and thus also ourselves, what he has to teach us about his grace. When we went through chapter 2 several weeks ago, we looked at what I called the gospel according to Jonah, seeing the nature of of grace, as Jonah realized his helplessness before God and God's gracious provision for him in the belly of the fish. Well, what we will see as we read through chapter 4 this morning is what I have called the gospel according to Jonah, part 2, as we're going to see the extent of God's grace. We learned about the nature of his grace. Today we're going to learn about the extent of God's grace. And in looking at the extent of God's grace, we will ultimately see this, that a spirit of self-righteousness will always limit the extent of God's grace. Spirit of self-righteousness will always limit the extent of God's grace. So let's read chapter 4 together this morning and see the extent of God's grace in this world. Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came upon the next day, came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. Lord, we thank you for Jonah 4. We thank you for this book. We pray that we would, as Jonah will have to face the grace of God in this text, we pray, Lord, this morning we would come face to face with your amazing grace, see its extent, remind ourselves of its nature, and be changed by the grace you extend to us. We thank you. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. There's two clear sections in Jonah 4, similar to what we've seen throughout the book of Jonah. First, we hear Jonah's response to God. And second, we hear God's response to Jonah. So first, in verses 1 through 4, we see this in Jonah's response. We see Jonah's response is self-righteous in response to God's grace. See, Jonah's self-righteous response to God's grace. See, Jonah has preached his message of judgment, and now he waits. But judgment never comes. Forty days passes, Nineveh is still standing, and he doesn't like it. Doesn't like it. We see in these first few verses that Jonah's response to God's gracious compassion on Nineveh is not praise and rejoicing, but is great anger. The text actually says that that what God has done was exceedingly evil to Jonah. He doesn't like it. And in verse 2, which we've alluded to throughout the whole book of Jonah, throughout this series, we see the reason for this internal wrestling of Jonah throughout the entirety of the book and why he never wanted to do this in the first place. He prays to God, he uses the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, which we haven't heard since he used it back in chapter 2. And he says this, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. In other words, he says, God, I just knew you were going to do this. Because that is who you are. You are a God of grace. You are a God of compassion. And that's why I ran. Because I did not want to see your mercy extended to the Assyrians. 
But after that whole fish incident, you know, I finally came and I preached the judgment that they deserve. But instead, you did what you could have totally done without me. I should have just ran. Jonah knows that God is gracious. He just saw it in chapter 2 when he was saved from the fish. But he cannot fathom this grace of God extending to those outside who he thinks deserve it. He is ultimately angry because it is God's will, not his own, that prevails in this text. Perhaps he's also angry because his reputation is at stake, right? He's this prophet. He comes in and says, judgment's going to happen. In 40 days, judgment doesn't happen. Maybe he's nervous about his reputation, but it doesn't matter. Either way, Jonah preached and sought judgment on Nineveh, and instead, God brought salvation and grace. And his anger at God's compassion here is so strong that he goes as far as to say in verse 3, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. He would rather die than live another moment before a God whose grace is just given to anybody. Now, he's not the only prophet in Scripture to have responded like this, though. Elijah, back in 1 Kings 19.4, requests death also, but he does so because his ministry to God had failed. Here, Jonah requests death because his ministry actually had success. It makes no sense. This great success could have motivated him for greater usefulness for the kingdom, but instead the conversion of those he does not think deserves God's grace makes him want to die. We again see that the heart of Jonah is a lot like the heart of the Pharisees in Jesus' ministry, whose understanding of God's blessings and salvation was limited just to their own people and only those who lived and acted the way that they expected them to. But as Jesus showed the Pharisees, especially in the parable of the prodigal son, where the eldest son's anger at the joy and grace of the father for the son who had returned is meant to represent their own self-righteousness, he shows them that his grace is not just for those who think they deserve it, but is actually for those who know they don't deserve it. Jonah is filled with self-righteous anger as he cannot yet understand how the grace that he learned about in chapter 2 could be extended to others. And in seeing Jonah's self-righteous anger, God says to him, Is it right for you to be angry? And to this, Jonah has no answer. A spirit of self-righteousness will always limit the extent of God's grace. And here is a warning for us because of Jonah's response. Salvation of others leads to anger if you are acting as God's tool of judgment instead of his instrument of grace. I'm going to say that again. Salvation of others leads to anger if you are acting as God's tool of judgment instead of his instrument of grace. We get to this point and Jonah has nothing more to say to God. He's too angry to stay in that city. He'd rather die, but God doesn't bring death. He won't stay in Nineveh, though. We read in verse 5, he goes out from the city. He makes himself a shelter that overlooks the city, and he waits to see what's going to happen to the city. Because who knows? Perhaps God would finally respond in justice and fairness that Jonah expected, and he would have a front row seat to this judgment show. 
but it's not to be. The second thing we see in this passage in verses 6 to 11 is God's gracious response to Jonah's self-righteousness. We read in the text here, Then the Lord God appointed a plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. God responds to Jonah's bad attitude here, just like he does in chapters 1 and 2, with an object lesson from nature. Like the great cosmic teacher that he is, that we often see in our own lives, God uses his created world to help Jonah better understand who he is. We see here God appoints this plant. Probably the castor oil plant grows really fast in warm climates and has large leaves that offer shade to help ease Jonah's discomfort. Literally, the original text says it, prov- it was provided by God to save Jonah from his evil. The irony is that Jonah felt that what God had done was evil, yet God responds by caring for Jonah's evil. The text also says that he is exceedingly happy because of the plant. Again, what irony. Jonah experiences God's deliverance of those who don't deserve it and is exceedingly angry, but immediately becomes deliriously happy when he receives deliverance because he thinks he does deserve it. And as he's sitting in his shelter with the assistance of the shade from the plant, perhaps Jonah is thinking, finally, God gets it. He's looking out for me. He's approving my plan to watch the judgment of Nineveh. But when Jonah wakes up the next day, he is again disappointed as he finds that a worm appointed by God has eaten and killed the plant. And what's worse, like in chapter 1, God uses the wind Against Jonah, here he sends a scorching east wind coming off the Arabian desert. It would have brought temperatures up to 110 degrees with as little humidity as 2%. And Jonah becomes faint from the heat, again experiencing, as we saw in chapter 2, death within life. Right? He's still alive, but he feels like he's dead. But this time, he has no desire to be saved from God. As opposed to verse 3, where he asks for God to kill him, here he just wishes for death to take him. It's almost as if Jonah can't even trust God to kill him any longer. Since it apparently seems like God just wants to keep Jonah alive to make him suffer. Had God not had enough with him? He brings him all the way to Nineveh just to save his people's sworn enemies and then seemingly toys with him like a child on an anthill with a magnifying glass, leaving him uncomfortable and miserable. God, just let me die already. And just like we saw in verse 4, God's response is to question the validity of Jonah's anger. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? He's angry about a plant. I mean, have any of you ever experienced a minor inconvenience in your life, but because it's been compounded from many other things, it becomes the worst possible thing that could possibly have happened to you in your whole life? I remember one time when I was in college, 
I was just having one of those days, right? I was having the worst day. Classes were hard. Lacrosse practice had gone too long. The cafeteria food was the worst it's ever been. And all I wanted to do was get back to my room and collapse on my bed and forget about the day. And there it was when I got back to my room. My roommate's mac and cheese bowl in my sink. In my sink. I mean, how dare he? After the day I just had, he's, he's gone. He's, he's a goner. There's no way he's going to get up from this. And when he got back to the room, I mean, that mac and cheese bowl was the spark that was going to ignite World War III. And I hope that I'm not the only one who's had an experience like that. Because <laughs> if so, I'm embarrassed to admit it. Right? A minor inconvenience, something that is not that big a deal, but has been compounded by other things, becomes the worst possible thing. Jonah's response here to the plant being taken away, I am so angry, I wish I were dead. Jonah, buddy, it's a plant. And what's worse is you still have your shelter. This is not that big a deal. But God here was showing Jonah on a small scale what judgment looked like so that he would never want anything like that for the people of Nineveh. But again, he only lashes out in anger. Again, this text is so rich with irony. Jonah is angry that God would deliver those who don't deserve it and demands destruction. Then God shows him what destruction on those who deserve it looks like, and Jonah again responds with anger. The fundamental conflict for Jonah here with God is not God's actions of deliverance or destruction. It's the object of God's actions. It's who he's delivering. It's who he's bringing destruction on. His self-righteousness gives him an attitude that feels that if God helps him, that's great. But if it goes against his expectations and what he wants, he's unhappy with God. His anger had become completely irrational. So much so that we see in verses 10 and 11 God's explanation of the absolute ridiculousness of Jonah's response here. All right, in, Jonah, in verses 10 and 11, we read the Lord's explanation of this object lesson that he's provided for Jonah. He says to Jonah, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? There are several big issues that God is trying to show Jonah here regarding his response of anger. First, sorry, first over the Ninevites' deliverance and now over the plant's destruction. He's, he's trying to show them that his anger in both those situations is completely ridiculous. First, he says, Jonah cares deeply for this plant, which he did not do anything to help with. And if that's the case, then shouldn't God deeply care for the people of Nineveh whom he did create and whom he does sustain? Second, Jonah cares for a plant that was only there for one day. Shouldn't he and God care even much more for the great city of Nineveh that's been there for so long? And third, Jonah cares about a plant that has only benefited himself, 
whereas he doesn't show any care for the 120,000 people and their many animals in Nineveh. He cares for a plant and is upset that the plant has been destroyed, but seemingly does not care for 120,000 people and for the many animals that live in Nineveh. And to make it worse, God says that these people couldn't tell their right hand from their left. This is a description of immaturity, and in this case, of spiritual ignorance. He's saying Jonah cares more about a plant than he does about people who are completely helpless and who are completely lost and who would not know any better. And here's the main point. God's love for the people of Nineveh, whom he had created, is far different from Jonah's indifference to their damnation and greater than Jonah's warped concern for a wild plant's shade for which he has done nothing worthy to deserve it. The phrase we see in verses 10 and 11, to concern, to have concern for, is a reference to compassion and literally means to weep for. The idea is that whereas Jonah is weeping for a plant that has only helped himself, God has been weeping for the people of Nineveh who did not know any better and could not come to repentance to him without Jonah's ministry. The good news from this text and from the rest of Scripture is that although Jonah responds to the sinfulness of man with self-righteousness, God cares enough for his creation to have sympathy on our spiritual ignorance and to do something about our dilemma. Jonah struggles with the idea that God can be both just and loving by overlooking the sin of the Ninevites, so much so that he would rather die than stand a moment longer before this God. But we see here, and even more fully in the cross of Christ, that God is too loving to destroy us and too holy to leave us as we are. Just as God is sovereign to respond to the repentance of the Ninevites, regardless of how deserving they are of judgment, so too does God care for spiritually wayward humans like us enough to provide a way for our deliverance in response to the realization of our helplessness before God. Just as God responds to their repentance out of a deep compassion and his steadfast love, so too does God respond to us with compassion and love when we come before him in humility and repentance, admitting that we have not lived the way that we should have. And just as God takes the wickedness of the Ninevites on himself, God takes our sinfulness and places it on Jesus on the cross so that through his death we have been forgiven and our sins atoned for. And even better, our forgiveness now opens the door for the Spirit's work of renewal in our lives so that we now can live as we ought and trust in him fully each day. Like Keller says, whereas Jonah went outside the city hoping to witness its condemnation, Christ went outside the city to die on a cross to accomplish salvation. I could go on for hours about this good news that we see here in Jonah and the good news that we see here in Scripture. But the issue we've seen in this text, remember, is that a spirit of self-righteousness will always limit the extent of God's grace. 
Like the eldest son in the parable of the prodigal son, Jonah is angry with the father's love for repentant sinners and as such limits and withholds the amazing grace of God. And with God's questioning of Jonah's misguided compassion in verses 10 and 11, the book ends. We have no answer from Jonah, but we do not need one. For we are left with two things that God has wanted us to see from Jonah's experience. First, God's people now understand the true nature of the compassion and the grace of the Lord, which embraces all nations with equal love. Right? Israelites who would hear this story, who were like Jonah, who were complacent in their nationalistic fervor and this peace and prosperity that they were experiencing, would have to come face to face like Jonah does with the fact that God's grace was not just limited to his own people alone, but extended to the ends of the earth, to all those who came to trust and believe in him. God doesn't just want his own people to experience peace and prosperity. He wants all of humanity to experience peace and prosperity through the work of his people. And second, Jonah must now sit and look at himself in the mirror, seeing how he has denied God's grace and how he is holding on to this spirit of self-righteousness. And likewise, we do too. You see, the lack of of Jonah's answer to God's question here leaves the question hanging in the air for us to answer. As Jonah's looking at himself in the mirror, it's turned back on us in this text. We have to ask ourselves, where in our lives might we have a spirit of self-righteousness that has been tempted to limit the extent of God's grace? Where have you felt like gospel ministry was not worth it because it seemed too difficult or it was uncomfortable or perhaps we would never see fruit there? Where have you forgotten the responsibility that we have in the line of Abraham that the ways that God has blessed us was meant for us to go out and take those blessings to the world around us? as we let the cliffhanger of the book of Jonah settle into the air before us, may the reality of God's universal grace and the realization that we can sometimes be tempted to limit that grace stand before us as it did our brother Jonah. Because God wants to save this world and he wants to use his church to begin that process. But we cannot and will not be faithful to our call if we do not understand the grace of God that we have been given. So this morning, let us rightly understand the universality of God's grace, remembering that a spirit of self-righteousness will always limit the extent of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you for the last five weeks of our ability to come and study this book. We thank you, Lord, that at times we've seen ourselves in the text. At times we've put ourselves in the belly of the fish, calling out to God for grace, for mercy, for deliverance. We've seen ourselves at times, Jonah, who is being faithful, but his heart's just not quite in his ministry. We see ourselves at times feeling like the blessings that God has given us 
maybe just shouldn't go out to anyone else today. But Lord, more importantly than seeing ourselves in Jonah, we remember that this is a story about you. This is a story about who you are, the compassion, the mercy, the grace that you have on humanity, us included. And we're thankful, Lord, that those failures do not stop your gospel from going out and transforming lives. We thank you that the failure of others, that the failure of our own lives has not stopped the gospel from transforming us. Lord, may we be motivated by the book of Jonah to go out into this world with compassion like you have for lost sinners. May we bring your gospel message to those who need it. May we show compassion and mercy to those who have never experienced it anywhere else. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the gospel. And thank you most of all for Jesus Christ and the cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.